be seated. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, this Palm Sunday, thank you so much for being here. Um, you might notice that my head looks larger than normal. It's because I got a haircut. Looked in the mirror last night. Looked like somebody dropped a pumpkin between my shoulders. And so, uh, as the older I'm getting, the bolder I'm getting, and the larger my head gets. And so, I don't know. That's bothering me. So don't make any comments about it after church. Hey, if you think about it too, pray for us uh, this afternoon and into tomorrow. We have a missions pastor from a church in Arkansas that's going to be flying in today at about 11.45, spending the next two days with us. And this summer in July, uh, they'll be bringing a mission team of some teenagers uh, from down in Arkansas to spend a week with us and uh, just allow them to minister alongside our church and uh, should be pretty exciting. And then also just a quick reminder before we look here at Matthew 21, um, that we have a family meeting tonight. So if you're a covenant member of Living Hope at six o'clock till about 645 in this room um, is our family meeting. And so I encourage you to be here if you can be here for that. So uh, Palm Sunday, Matthew 21, uh, we're going to be looking at a very familiar story this morning, maybe one you've heard before, but hopefully we can bring some fresh eyes and the spirit can bring, breathe some fresh life on this story as well. So if you'll stand with me, in honor of reading God's Word, Matthew 21. We're going to look at uh, 11 verses this morning, but right now I just want to read verses 8 and 9. And God's Word says this, A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Verse 9, Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this season that we celebrate, Lord, this Palm Sunday as we look back on the events that transpired that holy week. And God, I pray even in the midst of uh, the familiar stories, that Father, as we said just a moment ago, that you would breathe fresh life onto these stories today. God, would your spirit speak fresh truth to us? Would, it, would your spirit remind us of these things that maybe we've just become so accustomed to? Lord, that without this Holy Week and the events that transpired leading up to Resurrection Sunday, God, we would be hopeless. Without Jesus, we are hopeless. So, Father, I pray you give us ears to hear from you this morning, hearts to receive the word and the, what you want us to know, and God, hands and feet to live this out as we walk with Jesus the rest of this week. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today I want to revisit a simple question that we looked last year at, on Palm Sunday. Last year on Palm Sunday, we were online only, and so uh, hopefully you're watching online, but you probably weren't. I won't judge you too much. I did that last year. But uh, a simple question that we looked at last Palm Sunday that I think is the most crucial question that we can ask each year as we revisit this story in Matthew 21, and it's this, who is Jesus? And I know that's a very simple question, but I believe with all my heart that is the most important question that any living, breathing human being can ever ask themselves, who is Jesus? Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 says that at some point every human being that has ever existed or will ever exist will someday have to answer that question, who is Jesus? But it's important to note too that note how I, I phrase that for us today. It's who is Jesus. It's not who is Jesus to me. It doesn't matter. It's not who is Jesus to my grandparents or my mom and my dad. It's irrelevant. The question isn't who do I think Jesus is. It doesn't matter. The question is not who do other people say Jesus is. It's irrelevant to us this morning. 
Instead, maybe we could even reframe the question a little bit, and I think this was helpful for me. Maybe the question shouldn't even be, who is Jesus? Because that leaves some room for for liberties for you and I. Maybe the question we need to ask ourselves this Palm Sunday and be reminded of is this. Who is the Jesus of the Bible? Because we got to get that question right to get eternity right. That is the most important question that any of us can ever ask and find the answer to. Who is the Jesus of the Bible? Years ago, I read several different books as I was uh, in seminary and uh, doing apologetics classes. I remember one of the classic arguments when answering that question, who's the Jesus of the Bible? People would often use this phrase, that Jesus of the Bible was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Maybe you've heard that before. In some capacity, some people would say Jesus was just a, a good person who lived a good life. He did good things. He had good intentions, and he came to help bad people become good people. There's truth in some of that, but that was not the mission of Jesus. Jesus came to make dead people alive. It wasn't going from bad to good. It was death to life. That was the mission of Christ. Some people would say Jesus was simply a good teacher who taught important lessons that revolutionized the world. Again, there's a nugget of truth in that, but that's not all. Some would say Jesus was a liar. He was just a lunatic who was going after a blind cause, chasing blind cause, chasing social reform in this world, trying to deceive people, and he was crazy enough to ultimately die for that cause. But who is the Jesus of the Bible? Because how we answer that question, friends, makes all the difference in this life and all the difference for eternity. And I think here in Matthew 21, the Palm Sunday story, we see the answer to that question. Three things I want us to to pull out of this. Let's uh, look at this together. Um, Matthew 21 sets in motion in the scriptures what's known as Holy Week. You're probably familiar with that. You've probably celebrated some of these uh, before. Holy Week in the Protestant church. And these days might be unfamiliar to you, but from today all the way through next Sunday, Easter or Resurrection Sunday, there's events that took place in Christian history that are important that we need to have some knowledge of. Let me give these to you real quick, and then we'll, we'll look at our passage here. Sunday and Holy Week today, Palm Sunday, some people would call this Triumphal Entry Sunday. This is where Jesus officially goes public with his ministry for the first time. He's been doing all these miracles in the, in the towns, and he always told his, his disciples, don't tell anybody yet, don't tell anybody yet, don't tell anybody yet. This is where he goes public with his ministry. Tomorrow, Monday, is what's known as Holy Monday. This is where Jesus went in and cleansed the temple in Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. Tuesday is what's known as uh, Holy Tuesday, where Jesus had several encounters with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, Matthew 21, 14 through 25. Wednesday is what's known as Spy Wednesday in the Christian tradition. This is where Judas, the disciple who betrayed Christ, conspired with the religious leaders to betray Jesus, ultimately to have Jesus killed. Thursday is what's known as uh, Maundy Thursday. That's that moment in time where Jesus observed the Last Supper or communion with his disciples celebrating the Passover. At the end of our service today, we're going to be doing that in remembrance of Palm Sunday. This upcoming Friday is known as Good Friday. It's where the death of Jesus took place. We always ask that question, why do we call it good? Because if Jesus didn't die, there wouldn't be a resurrection Sunday. So it's a good thing that that happened. We're actually encouraging our church, if you've been following our 21-day prayer guide these last couple of weeks, that this Good Friday, if you're willing and your health allows, to actually fast for that day. And really to fast for, for one main purpose. We want to fast for the salvation of souls on Easter Sunday. Because did you know globally, more people, non-believers and Christians alike, will gather in churches and gather online this Easter Sunday, likely more so than any other day in human history. 
And so we should fast and pray and ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to move in churches around our world that people would come to know Jesus as their Savior. This upcoming Saturday is what's known as Silent Saturday. It's the day where Jesus' lifeless body laid in that cross, and it seemed like death had won, Matthew 27. But next Sunday, we get to celebrate with pancakes first, in Jesus' name. (laughs) But we get to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. I like the term Easter Sunday because it provokes feelings of Easter bunnies and eggs. That's awesome. But I love calling it Resurrection Sunday because the reason we gather weekly is because of what happened that day, Resurrection Day, Matthew chapter 28, and we'll celebrate that next week. But this morning is Palm Sunday. This morning is Palm Sunday. So what's the background on this passage? Here in Matthew 21, we're going to read through these verses here in just a moment. Jesus is on a a journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. So he's making this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, a 17-mile journey that he has to engage in that sets in motion the events of Holy Week. This is the culmination of Jesus' ministry, completing the mission in which he was sent for to die for the sin debt of mankind, restoring our relationship with God. It's the beginning of Passover for the Jewish people here in Matthew 21, which is significant that we'll see here in just a moment. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 11. Flip over a few pages in your Bible or scroll to it if you need to. John records this exact same event in John chapter 11, and it gives us context for what's going on here in Matthew chapter 21. John 11, verse 55. Look what God's Word says. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem... For the, to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. So what's going on here in Matthew 21 is the start of Holy Week, but it's also the start of Passover for the Jewish people. What was Passover, if you're unfamiliar with that? It was a time when the, the Jews from all over the known Roman world would gather to remember their freedom and release from Egyptian slavery. If you read the book of Exodus chapter 12, you see that historical event take place where God had sent the angel of death through Egypt to kill the firstborn, but you remember what the Jews did. They took the blood of a spotless lamb, they placed it over the doorposts of their home, and the angel of death would pass over them, and God would spare their lives. Yet as they're going to remember that event from Exodus 12, what they don't realize is the true Passover lamb is about to enter into Jerusalem. That Jesus, the spotless sacrificial lamb, the one sent from God, is about to die for their sins once and for all, The sacrificial lamb was on his way. But let's look here at verses 1 through 5 again of Matthew 21 and answer that question. Who is the Jesus of the Bible? Point number one is this. If you'd like to take notes, write this down. Jesus is God. My goodness, that's so simple, but that's so important. That is so simple, but so important. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 21. We haven't read this yet. It says, when they approached Jerusalem, so Jesus and his disciples are on this journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. When they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples. Pause there with me for just a moment. So upon arrival from Jericho, they stopped just outside at Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, roughly two miles outside of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that Jesus pauses in that moment. He calls two of his disciples. They're not identified here. And he sends them ahead into Jerusalem with a very specific and unique task. Look at verse 2 with me. So what does he tell these guys to do? Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie it and bring them to me. If anybody says anything to you, because they probably are going to, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So look at the very specific, unique task here. This is so important. Jesus says, go to to Bethphage, the, the village ahead of you. 
Right when you arrive inside the gate at once, Jesus is highly specific with these two guys. Number one, because the disciples were probably teenagers. But number two, he's proving something to them. All right? So at once, you'll enter the city. And when you enter the city gate, you're going to find a donkey. Not only a donkey, but there's going to be a colt tied to the donkey. Here's what I need you to do next. Once you see the donkey and the colt inside the city gates, untie the donkey and bring them to me. Highly specific. And you have to imagine these two disciples are wondering to themselves, Jesus, that's stealing. That's what's going on here. But he's highly specific and he keeps going. Jesus says to him, and once you untie the donkey, somebody's going to say something to you. They're probably going to try to stop you. Duh. Every year I read that, you just see a little bit of humor with the Lord. You're going to steal somebody's donkey and the donkey's colt, and somebody's probably going to stop you. And then just imagine if one of them was Peter. You know, Peter's like, I got my knife. I will take care of this, you know, kind of a thing. Why would they be stopped? Because they're taking somebody's animals. Again, to, to, to put a little lighthearted humor on it, if you walked in your driveway this afternoon and your neighbor was walking over and you're like, hey, man, what are you doing? Dude, I'm just going to take your car. Why? Because the Lord said he needed it. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm going to go back inside. That's what's going on here. They arrive in Jerusalem, and Jesus says, if they stop you, they just say the Lord needs it. Highly specific, highly unique task that he's called them to. But what's Jesus showing us about the significance, the uniqueness, the specificness behind this situation? He's showing us something about himself. What is it? That he's in complete control over every situation uh, in the universe in general, but also specifically regarding his crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus is sovereign over all things. Jesus, God in human flesh, is sovereign over everything. In the simplicity of sending these two guys to get a donkey and a colt, Jesus is proving his divinity over the situation. That is so significant for us this morning, that he is God in the flesh. He's not just a lunatic, he's not a liar, but he is God in the flesh. He is Lord. Now watch this too, this is pretty cool. Not only that, but Jesus is showing us fulfillment of prophecy here. Look at verses 4 and 5 there in Matthew 21. So Matthew adds this little detail. Jesus sends him ahead and Matthew says, Hey, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, what's going on here is Matthew is showing us that these events that Jesus is about to engage in were predicted several hundred years before he actually did them. So number one, the first thing that Matthew shows us is Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy found in Isaiah 62, verse 11. Isaiah 62, verse 11, why is that significant? Isaiah was written 700 years before this event took place. You hear that number and you're like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to show you why that's significant here in just a second. So not only is Matthew saying, hey, what Jesus is doing, Isaiah predicted. Secondly, Zechariah predicted this in Zechariah 9, verse 9. 500 years before Jesus did this very thing. Now, we hear the number 700 and 500, and we know they're big numbers, but we don't realize how many years that actually is. We said this last year. Do you know how old the United States of America is? 235 years. That means Zechariah's prophecy took place like twice as old as the United States is. And the other prophecy took place three times as old as the United States is. That, that's a long time. And these people made these predictive prophecies about what Jesus was do, would do. And he comes into Jerusalem and he does them exactly as was predicted. What's he showing us? He's the Savior of the world. 
He's God in flesh. That the very thing that the prophets said would come, the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus was the fulfillment of those things. Now notice this detail too. This is one of my favorite parts of this Passover story. This wasn't just any donkey. These guys just didn't roll up into to Bethphage and were like, yeah, that one will do. It didn't work that way. Look at how significant this is. Um, Luke chapter 19. So same event going on in Matthew 21. Luke talks about it too. All right. So if you remember the Gospels, they look at the same stories from different angles. So, so a for example, we've used this illustration before. If you right now, if I give you a piece of paper and I told you to describe the worship center that you're sitting in right now, what you write down would be different if you're sitting on this side of the room than what somebody sitting on this side of the room would write down than what I'm writing down. Are we all seeing the exact same thing? Yes, but we see it from different perspectives. That's the Gospels. That's what's going on here. So in Luke chapter 19, Luke tells this story as well. And Jesus tells the disciples, Luke 19, verse 30, it'll be up on the screen. Go into the village ahead of you, that was Bethphage, and after you enter it, you will find a colt there. Here's the, oh man, this detail. Look at this. On which no one has ever sat. Don't miss that. You're going to go into Bethphage, you're going to find that colt on which no one has ever sat. You see, Luke gives a significant detail about that colt. That Jesus would be the first individual to ever sit on the back of that animal. Why does that matter? Friends, this is good stuff. If this doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what to tell you. In the Old Testament, you can find example after example after example of animals that had never been used in any capacity first being used for God's sacred work. That if God was going to use an animal to engage in some kind of holy task or some kind of holy purpose, that that animal could not have been used for any other purpose before. Here's an example. 1 Samuel chapter 6, Ark of the Covenant. The two oxen that pulled the Ark of the Covenant, you can read in 1 Samuel chapter 6, had never pulled anything else before because they were commissioned for a divine sacred task to pull the Ark of God. If an animal had been used for ordinary purpose, purposes before, it could not be used for God's sacred purpose now. Why does this matter? Because Jesus was about to engage in the most sacred event in all human history, dying for the sins of mankind to appease the holy wrath of God. And as he goes into Jerusalem for that final trek to the cross, God says, I'm going to put him on the back of an animal that has never been used before because I'm about to engage in something that is the holiest of all holy things. That's cool. That, you don't get it. That's okay. No, I'm just kidding. That's amazing. It's amazing to me. What was he proving? That he's God. The details. God is in the details of everything. Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus is a promise keeper. Jesus is a promise keeper. Look at verses six and seven. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They don't argue with Christ. All right, Jesus, we're going to go into Bethphage. We're going to get the donkey. We'll bring it back. We'll see you in 15. You know, that's just amazing to me. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and, and Jesus sat on them. Everything that Jesus said would happen, happened as exactly as he said it would. What's that remind us? That he's a promise keeper. That Jesus said it, it came to pass. We can depend on the words of Jesus. Friends, now, 2,000 late years later, this book's still reliable. If God said it, it's still true. We see that in this passage, that if God makes a promise, it will come to pass. Look at verse 8 of Matthew chapter 21. So a very large crowd, we're going to look at that in just a second, that's pretty significant. A very large crowd, they spread their clothing on the road. 
Now, like this is their outer garment. So often in that, that culture, it was very common to wear a robe of some kind, and then you would have like an outer tunic or an outer cloak, maybe a sash or a belt of some kind. So they're taking off this clothing and they're putting it out on the streets. It says others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. So Jesus is now going from Bethphage into Jerusalem, a two-mile journey, and he's met by a large swath and a large crowd of people. And as he's entering into the town, they're taking off their clothing and they're laying it on the dirt, the dirt roads. They're cutting branches, palm branches from these trees, and they're laying these out on the dirt roads. Why were they doing this? There's two pretty significant things going on here. First, they were showing that Jesus was the king they'd waited on, the savior that they had longed for. How do we know that? Let me show you another passage in 2 Kings, if you want to look there in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings, we see a very similar thing happen. There was a, a gentleman named Jehu who was being anointed as the next king over Israel. And notice what they did with Jehu, 2 Kings chapter 9. <clears throat> so Jehu said, he talked to me about this and that and said, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you as king over Israel. So Jehu's being anointed as king over this next king of Israel. And watch what happens when they understand that a king is in their presence. So each man quickly took his garment, that's that outer tunic, and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. And they, they, they blew the ram's horn and proclaimed that Jehu is king. See what's going on there? Culturally, in the Jewish culture, when someone was a king or a king entered into your presence, a king was going to change things and save people. It was a sign of honor and respect and dignity to take off that outer tunic, to cut down these palm branches and put them down on the road or the street or the steps so the king could walk across them. The crowd is showing us here who Jesus is. that He's God and that he's a promise keeper. Now, the palm branches are significant as well. Again, these are familiar parts of the story we hear every year. Maybe you've seen a kid's play where they come running in with the palm branches. We've seen similar things that before. Palm branches in this culture were used often to represent the goodness or victory of a king. And do we see the significance there? Jesus bringing the goodness of God down to earth, but also the victory by dying on the cross. Jesus, by dying on the cross, showed us what a good God he is, but the resurrection in a couple days would show his victory over sin. Friends, so much is going on here. This is also prophetic of Jesus being the Savior of the world. Don't miss all these details. Revelation chapter 7, we see the, the end times, the corridors of eternity, the, the curtains pulled back. And what does it say? John says, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude. So John's giving us a picture of the future thousands of years from now when he sees the throne room of heaven. And what happens? A vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, which no one could number. That's good news, by the way. You want to make sure in heaven that we can't count the multitudes of people that are there because of what Jesus did and we were faithful to take the gospel to them. That excites me. Nobody could number and they're standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes. I can't wait for that day. Someday I'm going to trade these shirts for a white robe. Thank God it's not going to have to be ironed anymore. It's going to be awesome. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. You see, the entrance to Jerusalem is prophetic of the eternal state we'll be in. Why? Because a palm branch means victory. So forever, you're going to be able to stand in front of the throne of God, waving around your palm branch like an old lady in a Southern Baptist church somewhere, going, Jesus won! And it's awesome! And what do they cry out? Salvation belongs to our God. 
See, this crowd, for at least a moment, got it. They knew the king had arrived. And he had victory. It's amazing how quickly things turn on Friday. So why'd they have the branches? Because Jesus, the Savior, was bringing the victory. Verse 9 of Matthew 21. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed him, they, they shouted. We looked at this detail last year, and, I, and I, I always love to bring this up. Who were these crowds of people? I think this is pretty significant because, again, it, it's important to understand how many people were involved in this. In Matthew, we see in just a couple verses from now that Matthew said that when Jesus showed up, the entire city was in an uproar over what was going on. There were so many people that were shouting and singing and doing all this for Jesus that the city was in an uproar of what was going on here. So I want to show you a couple, couple other verses on why this is significant. Luke chapter 19. So now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for the miracles they had seen. Now, if you read uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, we know that at this point in Jesus' ministry, the number of disciples that he had numbered about 120 people, okay? So just imagine with me for a moment that 120 people showed up into a, a community or into a city of some kind. That's not gonna cause much of a stir you might end up on the news, you might end up on some Facebook pages, maybe somebody's going to do a live video about you, but it's not going to cause like too big of a stir. John chapter 11 verse 19 says that, that many Jews had come to comfort Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus, who Jesus later resurrected. Follow me here for just a second. Then in John chapter 12 verse 9, it says that another large crowd shows up because they heard Jesus resurrected Lazarus. So we've got a little bit more people showing up to this. Then it says in John chapter 12, verse 12, that that group of people migrated to Jerusalem for this Passover festival. John 12, verse 12 says, the next day when a large crowd had come to the festival, they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they'd seen him resurrect Lazarus. Some of them were at the funeral of Lazarus. And this whole crowd of people shows up. Here's what I think is significant. Sometimes we see this Palm Sunday celebration in our Bible stories, maybe on uh, television shows, a kid's cartoon that you've seen, and it's like Jesus comes rolling into town on a donkey, and there's about 35 people just hanging out, and they're like, oh, Jesus is amazing, oh, this is so awesome, this is wonderful, lovely, we love it, and then things kind of move on. The Bible makes it very clear that there were probably several hundreds, I mean, maybe even thousands of people that met Jesus at this Jerusalem city gate because the king had arrived, and the Savior had come, and they were pumped about it. This wasn't 10 people waving a few palm branches and an oak leaf throwing down their tunic on the ground. This was a large multitude of people. I love this part of the story because it's proving for us Jesus is the King and the Savior and the promise keeper and He's God and He's worthy of this. This was just reflective of what's going to be going on in eternity. Here, point number three. Jesus is the Savior we need. The Savior we need. So the crowds who went ahead of Jesus and those who followed Him shouted, when I read this, I can almost feel the ground shaking as they're praising the Lord. I can just imagine that there's so many people shouting these words that if you're in Jerusalem that you can... Sometimes when you all are singing during worship, I stand right on the other side of that door. And more often than not, when your voices really get going, you can hear the walls vibrating. If you watch the live stream, sometimes you can see the camera shaking because the voices are so loud. That's what I picture going on here in Matthew 21. So they're shouting, what? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. If you look in Matthew 21 and Luke chapter 19, verse 38, you're going to see these crowds shouted three distinct things. In Luke 19, they say, blessed is the king. That's important. In Matthew 21, they say the word Hosanna to the son of David. And then in Luke 19, they say, peace in heaven and glory to the highest heaven. Why are all of those significant for us today? 
First, it's another prophecy. They're quoting what David said in Psalm chapter 118, written nearly 1,000 years before Jesus did this very thing. Four times longer than the age of the United States of America, David penned the words of Psalm 118, which were prophetic of what the Savior of the world would come to do. Why is that significant? Jesus is proving his divinity yet again. Secondly, they're saying the word Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? We sing that often in our worship. Do we know what it means? It means save us. Save us. Because at least for a brief moment, they understood why Jesus had come. Save us, Savior. Then what do they do? They call Jesus the son of David. Do you know in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to a man named David, the king over Israel, Israel's greatest king, that someday through his lineage, that the Savior of the world would come. If you flip back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, you see that promise come to fulfillment because we see in the lineage of Jesus that David, Jesus was from the line of David. So when they cry out, Son of David, Hosanna to the Son of David, they're acknowledging again that God kept his promise. Do we see the three things that are so significant? God is a promise keeper. He's the Savior that we need. He is God. And the very last one, and we're done. What's the last phrase the crowd shout? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Here's why that's so significant. If you go back to the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, do you remember when the angel met the shepherds in the field? Do you remember what they said? I'll remind you. It'll be up on the screen. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, watch this, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. What were the crowds shouting? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. You see, God made a promise through a multitude of angels, innumerable ones that we couldn't even count to a group of lowly shepherds. Now, 33 years later, what's God doing? He's reminding his people yet again, I keep my promises. I keep it through generations and through decades and in seconds. God is a promise keeper. So what's the answer to our question? Who's the Jesus of the Bible? What do we see in Matthew 21? He's God in the flesh. That's good news. We see that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's a promise keeper that we can trust, that God's word stands the test of time. It is always the solid anchor in which we can rest ourselves with. He keeps his promises. And then lastly, the reason we celebrate the next seven days, Jesus is the savior we need. He's the savior that we need. So the final question I'm praying for us, do you know him? Because if you don't answer that question properly, that changes the trajectory of not only your life, but your eternity. Who is the Jesus of the Bible. Let me pray for us as Pastor Joe comes. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Father, the privilege that we've had to be in your house studying your word, and I pray that it's been an encouragement to your church today. Father, that even in the small details, we see the faithfulness of a big God. And God, I pray for the, the Christians in this room, Lord, that this would just invigorate a renewed passion in our souls, a renewed passion in our souls to take the gospel that we have received and take it to those who have not received it yet. For those that don't know Jesus yet, I pray that the, the specific nature of the prophecies, the specific nature of the events, Lord, even in this simple day known as Palm Sunday, would Lord show them in this moment that you are the God of the universe, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and that today would be a day where they would turn their life over to you, admit they're a sinner and their eternal tra trajectory would change forever today. So God, I pray a blessing upon the rest of the time that we have this morning. May we continue to honor you with it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.